0: Well, hey, Life! it is so good to be with you uh, wherever it is that you find yourself today. As we continue in our service, I just want to take this opportunity to pray for our tithes and offerings and just to remind you that if you'd like to continue to support us during this season in the work of ministry, we've made that really easy for you. You can just go to baylife.org slash give. And so I want to take some time to pray for that and also to pray for our time together in God's word today. So wherever you are, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit for his help. Oh Lord, your name is blessed in all the earth and there will come a day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord. Lord, we pray uh, during this time Uh, That you would use uh, the the good news of the gospel to go forward in these online means in a way that encourages, that proclaims the truth of Holy Week, the truth of Easter, that Jesus has conquered the grave. Lord, we pray for the gifts that we give, that you would use them to encourage our community, uh, to strengthen and edify those who are blessed by them. And God, we pray as we come to your word that the Holy Spirit who inspired it would give us wisdom to understand it and to live in light of it. All these things we ask in Christ Jesus' name, and we say amen. Well, wherever you are, you can grab a seat. Maybe it's just on your couch. Maybe it's on the floor. It is so good to be with you today. It's so good to join you as we begin this journey together as a church through this season of Holy Week. And maybe that's a phrase that you haven't heard before, apart from Mark mentioning it here at the beginning of our service. And so it it might be worth it to explain what it is we're talking about. That phrase, Holy Holy Week, is used to describe the sequence of events that took place during the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry before the cross, before the empty tomb. Your gospels, if you were to sort of walk through them, spend and impressive amount of time on those events, what took place in that final week. In fact, 75% of John's gospel is devoted to the events that took place this week. They spend a little bit of time on Jesus's birth. They spend time on Jesus's public ministry, but when it comes down to the final week of Jesus's life, every detail is chronicled. The early church recognized this. They saw the emphasis emphasis that the Bible places on the final week of Jesus' life. And so every year as they approached the Passover, when Jesus was crucified, and three days later when he rose again, they began to slow down and take the week leading up to that day to be reminded afresh of the power of these events That began in the third century, and it has continued in all places, in all branches of Christianity for some 1,700 years. It's this journey that we want to make together, this journey that we want to embark on together as a church in the coming days. It's the reason why we've produced a devotional for you and for your families. It has scripture readings and prayers and a Spotify playlist that you can listen to as you worship during this season. It's got crafts that you can do with your kids to reinforce the concepts that we want to teach during this week. It's the reason why our Stone pa- Table podcast is, is going to be offering devotionals every day, beginning on Palm Sunday, to help you reflect, along with Christians throughout the world, about the profound significance of what took place this week, 2,000 years ago. I- I'll tell you that we began planning this series back in November. Uh, Mark and I sitting in his office at the table having conversations about what this would look like, beginning to enlist artists to help us. And in January, Darnisha and Mark and myself sat down and we began to dream a little bit more about what this time would look like and never did any of us imagine that we would be streaming this week's services. Uh, It was not on our radar that we would be facing a pandemic like the one that we face. Uh, And yet here we are in the midst of Holy Week as Christians. And I think that it's fitting that we've charged ahead with this series because now more than ever, we need to be reminded of these events. Now more than ever, we as Christians must stand at the face of the empty tomb and hear it declare that Jesus is victorious over death, even if we have to do that only in spirit from our living rooms. But Holy Week doesn't begin with an empty tomb. Holy Week begins with an event that Mark mentioned earlier in our service that we call Palm Sunday. It's one of the few events that is mentioned in all four of your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's something that Mark read for us a little bit earlier in worship, but the event begins a couple verses prior to where Mark picked up, and it says that as Jesus and his disciples drew near to Jerusalem, They came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and they did as Jesus directed them. Now, maybe you grew up in a tradition where Holy Week was celebrated, or maybe you've just read through the gospels a few times, and this is a familiar passage to you. And if it's familiar, it's easy to glance over what has just taken place. Jesus is approaching with his disciples the city of Jerusalem a week prior to the events of the Passover, the most holy festival for the nation of Israel. And on the outskirts, Jesus sends two disciples ahead of him and says, I need you to go into this city and you're going to find a donkey. The first donkey you see, untie it, bring it back. I'll be riding that into Jerusalem. And Matthew doesn't record it, but you can almost imagine the disciples protesting and saying, you you really want us to just take the first donkey we see? And then Jesus says, if anybody says anything to you, just, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. It's a strange event. It almost sounds like a theft, but not quite. When I was younger, there was a game show that used to come on Nickelodeon, and I don't even remember the name of the game show, but what I loved about it was that they took kids that were roughly my age at the time, and they gave them a shopping cart, and they put them at the front of a store called Toys R Us, which no longer exists, and they said, you have five minutes. Anything you can fit in this shopping cart in five minutes is yours. Now, I loved this show because I knew that that's not how real life worked. I'd been to Toys R Us plenty of times, and normally the shopping cart was empty when we left. Every once in a while, we got to to get one toy, maybe two toys, But you never got to just take whatever you saw and bring it with you outside of the store, at least not legally. In the same way, you didn't just get to go and untie donkeys and lead them out of the city normally in Jesus' day, but there was one exception legally. There was only one instance in which this was okay. It was if a king asked for the donkey. You see, in Jesus' day, it was understood that kings had something of an imminent domain on means of transport. Kings didn't have to walk anywhere unless they wanted to. And so it was just an understood thing in Jesus' day that if a king decided that he wanted to ride on a donkey, your donkey was fair game. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, I need you to go into the city, the first donkey you see, I need you to untie it. And if anybody stops you, say the Lord has need of it. Jesus is exercising his right as a king. Any citizen in, in the ancient world would have understood this. And we have something like it in our modern world. How many police chase scenes have you seen in film or in television where it begins on foot and then suddenly the criminal's on a motorcycle and so the FBI agent flashes his badge to somebody in traffic and says, I need this car. It was the same in the ancient world, except there weren't FBI agents. There were kings. And so Jesus, in saying, bring me a donkey, he is saying something about his status. He is exercising his authority as king. He is saying very clearly on Palm Sunday to all who witnessed it, I am not just a carpenter. I am not just the son of Mary. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm not just a brilliant public speaker or a teacher or a rabbi. I am the rightful king of Israel. In fact, everything about this event in Palm Sunday is intentionally crafted by Jesus to communicate that fact that he is not just the rightful king of Israel, but he is the true king of the whole world. Paul in his letter to the church in Rome says that the very beginning of Christian faith, the gateway of salvation, is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That phrase in the Greek, Jesus is Lord, is not one that Paul invented. It was actually a political phrase. It served almost like the Pledge of Allegiance in the Roman Empire. But instead of saying Jesus is Lord, good Roman citizens said Caesar is Lord. It was a way of pledging allegiance to a ruler and to a king and submitting your life to Caesar's authority. And Paul says, you've got it all wrong. Caesar may be ruler over Rome, but the beginning of the Christian faith is to confess that Jesus is in fact Lord of everything. That Jesus is in fact king. And that God raised him from the dead. That is the declaration of Palm Sunday. Jesus is king the rightful heir of all things. So often we don't treat him that way though. We honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. There are so often areas in our lives that we refuse to let him near. His lordship is fine in this area, but not in this one. I I can think of a time in my own life where I, I felt the conviction of that. It was a a number of years ago, and I was just going through a, a rough patch. I was frustrated with where I was at. I felt like I was spinning my wheels in life, and things were just not turning out how I had expected them to. And I was having a conversation with my mom, and if you haven't met her, she's our children's pastor here at the church, one of the most gracious and kind people that you will ever meet, maybe even to a fault. And I was venting about how frustrated I was with everything and how disappointed I was with the season of life that I was in. And and in her gracious and kind way, she listened very, very carefully. And then as all good counselors who believe the gospel do, she began to speak back. And she said, Travis, I hear everything that you're saying, but here's what I know about you if everything that you preach is true. You believe that Jesus is sovereign over everything. You believe that God is working all things for your good, even this moment. And you believe that he hears you when you pray. So I've listened to you grumble and complain. Now you need to take that to God. Now, now you need to believe the things that you preach, that even here, God is sovereign and at work. And in, in, in a sort of a moment of, of frustration, and a moment of anger, I, I said to my mom without even thinking, I'm a pastor, don't, don't theologize me. Like, I, I don't need you to theologize me. And some of you at home are like cringing at this thought right now. And immediately, as soon as I said it, I knew that I'd made a mistake. One, because I'd been mean to my mom. But two, because I realized the foolishness of what I had just said. I realized that there were all of these areas of my life that I was perfectly content with Jesus being king over. Jesus was Lord. He could tell me not to get drunk. Jesus was Lord. He could tell me not to cheat on my taxes. Jesus was Lord. He could tell me not to gossip. But this area, my pain, I refused to let Jesus be Lord over. In this area, he wasn't allowed to tell me what to do. to, To use the imagery of Palm Sunday, the donkey was going to stay firmly tied to the post. He was Lord over every other area of my life, but here there was not room for anyone on the throne other than me. And perhaps that's you right now. There are areas of your life that Jesus has free reign over, but there are just as many hidden behind your back that you keep from him areas where you refuse to repent, areas where you refuse to walk in obedience to the commands of Jesus, our King, as he speaks through the pages of scripture. The message of Palm Sunday is this, Jesus is Lord. And we we use phrases that I think are not incorrect, like Jesus is our friend. There was a t-shirt when I was in high school that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And it's not untrue that, that, that Jesus is, is our, our companion and one who we can go to in prayer and pour out our hearts before, but the message of Palm Sunday is that Jesus is not just your buddy, Jesus is your king. Friends make suggestions, kings make demands, and if Jesus is indeed the king that he says he is on Palm Sunday then he lays claim over every facet of our lives. Nothing can be concealed from him. But there's more going on here that Matthew points out that Mark read for us at the beginning of our service from the writings of the prophets. Matthew tells us that everything that happened took place to fulfill these words. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. The religious people surrounding Jerusalem knew their Old Testaments well enough to know that as they saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem, that scripture was being fulfilled in their midst. That's, that's why the crowd began to gather. That's why they began to lay down their coats. That's why they began to strip the branches from the trees. That's why they began to cry out. That's why they began to celebrate the entrance of Jesus. But what they cry out is important. We're told in Matthew's gospel that what they say as Jesus enters is Hosanna to the son of David. Many New Testament scholars believe this is because they recognize that Jesus is not just fulfilling the words of the prophets, but Jesus is echoing a previous event in Israel's history. Because Jesus is not the first son of David to ride into Jerusalem as king. He is replaying the scene of Solomon's coronation found in 1 Kings. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament or maybe just the story of Solomon, he is the the heir to the throne of David. As, As David is on his deathbed, he appoints Solomon to reign over God's people. And as Solomon is crowned king, God visits him. And he gives him something of like a coronation present. He says that you can ask for anything and I will grant it to you. And and many in Solomon's position would have asked for long life. They would have asked for wealth. They would have asked for success in their military endeavors. But Solomon doesn't ask for any of that. He looks at at the task before him of leading God's people. And he says, "Your, your people are numerous. And I'm not up to the job of leading them. So if you'll give me anything, God, would you grant me wisdom to lead your people well? 1 Kings tells us that God delighted in Solomon's request. And it says specifically that God filled Solomon's heart with wisdom. Solomon used that wisdom to govern God's people for decades. But as as time went on, and as you read the story of the book of 1 Kings, around chapter 10 and 11, you come to one of the great tragedies in Scripture. Solomon turns from the Lord. The language of 1 Kings is that Solomon's heart turned from the Lord. That same heart that God had filled with wisdom now turns against its maker. And what Solomon begins to do with that wise heart of his is he begins to build temples for idols and he begins to lead the people of Israel to worship false gods and begins to, to set up places of worship for pagan deities. All of the wisdom that God gave Solomon, Solomon turns against his God. I'm convinced that Satan doesn't have a problem with us having gifts as long as those gifts are used against God rather than in service of him. And it's exactly what happens with Solomon. But on Palm Sunday, the tide begins to turn. And I wonder if the crowd didn't recognize it. That on that day, the true son of David in whom all treasures of wisdom are hidden, entered into Jerusalem to lead God's people. And he's not just wise like Solomon. He is the fountain of all wisdom. He doesn't simply lead God's people towards truth. He says that he is truth itself. And in some small way, the crowds recognize this and they begin to cheer, Hosanna to the son of David. Matthew tells us that as they're cheering this, there's many in the crowd that lay their coats down. Others cut branches from the trees around the city and they begin to lay them at Jesus' feet. It's John who tells us that those were palm branches, which is where we get the phrase Palm Sunday. But the significance of those palm branches can be lost on us with 2,000 years of history separating us from these events. You see, in Jesus' day, palms had come to be a symbol of Jewish identity. Rome was not the first empire to conquer God's people. They had been conquered before and occasionally, just occasionally, they had been able to overthrow their oppressors and live as a free people until they were conquered again. And in some of those instances, when the Jewish people were able to throw off the yoke of their oppressors, they would print their own money. And they did this because the the currency of the other nations often had their king or their ruler on it who was worshiped as a god. And so Jewish people obeying the Ten Commandments said, we're not going to have idols on our money. We're printing our own. And they would always print palm branches on the currency. It was symbolic of the freedom of God's people. It was symbolic of the overthrowing of those who had oppressed them. It functioned in Israel kind of like the, the bald eagle functions in the United States. Even if you were to see one out in the wild, it's, it's hard not to hear, I'm proud to be an American playing in the back of your head. It conjures all sorts of, of imagery. It's stamped on our money. The crowds on Palm Sunday take palm branches, and they lay them at Jesus' feet, calling him the son of David. As if to say, you are the rightful king, Now come overthrow Caesar for us, set us free. Matthew tells us and the rest of the gospels tell us that as they laid the palm branches at Jesus's feet, they kept chanting Hosanna. Now maybe that's a phrase that you heard growing up in church. There's countless worship songs that use this and, and that phrase is kind of elastic in scripture. Hosanna means a lot of things, but in its earliest form in the scriptures, Hosanna was not a shout of praise, but it was a cry for help. Hosanna was a phrase that was roughly translated, save us now or please help us. And so you can imagine this as Jesus is following the very path that Solomon followed and they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, help us now, set us free. Set us free. In this scene on Palm Sunday, The crowd is declaring that Jesus is king and they are pleading for his salvation, but they want salvation on their terms. They want Jesus to be king, but only if he rules them in the way that they want to be ruled. They want salvation, but they only want salvation from the Roman Empire. As is so often the case in our own lives, we'll bend the knee to Jesus. But only if Jesus gives us what we think we most need. And only if Jesus meets us on our terms. I can remember a number of years ago, uh, there was a a guy who was checking out our church, and he was very upfront about the fact that he wasn't a Christian, but that he was interested. He was seeking something more in his life. And he had come to several services, and and he and I had had conversations outside of church. And there was one night that I just sat down with him and was like, hey, man, you've been around for a couple months. Where are you at? just just explain to me where you're at with all this. Do you, do you still think this is crazy? Are you maybe starting to warm up to the idea that maybe some of this is true? And he said, you know, I, I think I am willing to admit that, that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. But I don't want to become a Christian if it means that I will have to change in. And then he brought out a laundry list of things he was unwilling to budge on. I don't want to become a Christian if it means I'll have to change my opinion here or change how I act here or change the way that I manage this relationship or if it means that I have to forgive these people who've wronged me and on and on and on it went. Yes, Jesus will be my king, but only if he's king on my terms. Isn't this what so many of us do? We come to Jesus, we call him Lord, but only if he rules us in the way that we see fit only if he answers our felt needs, only if he does what we ask him to. We come to him as though we have bargaining power and we lay our palms at his feet and say, save us from what I think I most need to be saved from. We've never had bargaining power. Jesus comes to us on his terms. And it's no wonder that the crowds that meet Jesus on Palm Sunday turn on him by Good Friday. They are absolutely right about the fact that Jesus is king and they are absolutely wrong about the sort of king that he will be. Jesus will conquer his enemies, but not from a chariot. He will conquer them from a cross. He has come to answer the cries of his people. Hosanna, save us, but he will save them Not from an oppressor like the Roman Empire, but one far more dangerous, the power of sin and darkness and hell. He is not the king that they expected, nor the king that we expect, but he is the king that we need. In a a moment like ours, Palm Sunday both confronts us and it also comforts us. It, It confronts us because it reminds us that we are not in control. And we never were. Jesus is the true king of all of creation. He comes to us on his terms, not ours. But in the midst of a world like the one we find ourselves in right now, Palm Sunday should offer inexpressible comfort to you as well. Because everything feels like it's spiraling out, like it's unmanned, But the message of Palm Sunday is that the true king of all creation entered Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He is wise, he is good, he is truth itself, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has not relinquished control of the cosmos even for a second even in the midst of what feels like chaos. And he has answered the cry of his people, Hosanna, save us. That is what Holy Week is about. That is the journey that lies ahead of us. It is the story of the crucified, risen and reigning King who is good and wise and worthy of our obedience, our allegiance and our trust. So wherever you are, I want to invite you to stand to your feet, to join us, and to sing in response to the rule and reign of the Son of David, Jesus Christ.